Looking for your next horror writing podcast fix? The This Is Horror podcast for readers, writers, and creators is the ultimate show for writing advice, tips, and a personal look into the lives of all your favorite authors. This is Horror Podcast. Listen in to long-form conversations with some of the best writers and creatives on the planet. Over 400 episodes with masters of horror such as Joe R. Lansdale, Chuck Palahniuk, Josh Mallerman, Joe Hill, Charlene Harris, Craig Clevenger, Ellen Datlow, Kathy Koja, and many more. The This Is Horror Podcast. Listen in at www.thisishorror.com. That's the This Is Horror Podcast for readers, writers, and creators. Horror on Main, a new weekend convention for the horror community. There are plenty of horror cons to choose from, but most only offer the genre as writers and actors. We explore all the shadows within horror entertainment. From idea to product, there are many people behind the scenes, including writers and actors, but also artists, publishers, directors, and composers, and we're bringing them to you, as well as contests, movies, panels, podcasters, and much, much more. We've been going to conventions for over 20 years and are changing up the little things to make the big picture amazing. Join us Memorial Day weekend 2023 in Hunt Valley, Maryland. Come to the block party and meet your new neighbors. See HorrorOnMain.com for details. Hi, uh, my name is Erica T. Worth, and I'm the author of White Horse that's out with Flatiron McMillan November 1st, and it's an indigenous literary horror novel. Um, it's about Carrie, who despises her mother because she thinks she abandoned her when she was two days old. Um, and she loves heavy metal and she loves horror. Those are the things she loves. But when her um, cousin Debbie uh, gives her an old bracelet of her mother's, Carrie's like, yeah, thanks, and basically tosses it aside. And um, But when she touches it, her mother starts haunting her, the ghost of her mother, and this monster begins to invade her dreams. And so Carrie decides that she uh, guesses she should find out what happened to her mother after all. And uh, one of the bits of ins inspiration for this novel was um, had to do with my grandmother as I had been told all of my life that my grandmother had suicided. Um, but when a cop looked at the um, death certificate for my mother, he said to her that it sort of looked like it had been doctored and the family came to wonder if her husband um, had murdered her. And so that um, controversy had has never been resolved. And I think in some ways the tension between those two uh, potential very, very, very different facts um, in some ways kind of like stayed inside my brain and erupted into this novel. <laughs> Papa Joe has joined the building. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he just uh, texted me and told me he'd see me here, but. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. I have a new background. CD motel. Oh yeah, you do. <laughs> Plus base, Jesus. Base yeah. motel over there. Yeah, I can live like it's a bachelor. A, the the, the lighting in there is definitely like oh, you look like you're about you to be murdered. To do, man. Hold up. I'll I don't know. Another light. <laughs> hey Ed. How's that, Brennan? Slightly better. Still kind of look like you're going to be I murdered, can hear you but on my headphones, but I can't hear it all that well. 
<laughs> we're we're going to wait till we get about halfway through, and they're going to be like, who's that behind you there, Patrick? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talking shit. Yeah, and I was. I said, oh, you were. She said, I'm gonna wait till about, <laughs> about halfway in, and then I'm gonna say, Patrick, who's that behind you? Okay. <laughs> Sweet Jesus, he's got a hockey mask on. It was weird because I walked into the room the first day and catfish the show was playing. So I don't know why the TV was on. What's up, Casey? Hey guys, how's it going? Hey, Casey. Pretty good. Wow. Did I kill it? Yeah, <laughs> my arrival? Yeah, no, I can't believe everyone wasn't talking for a second. Where are you, like city-wise? It's called Horsham, Pennsylvania. Is it as like desolate as it sounds? It's actually close to, I'm not kidding, a place called Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Yeah. I've been through there, but... I've never stopped there. Uh, Tim Truman and I went by it, actually, I think. One time. I haven't been there since I claimed the land, so. Oh. <laughs> mm. You're puzzled. Okay. <laughs> Quit. I just sent him a link. I sent him a link, so. Oh, okay. Give me a tour. Oh, yeah. I did just eat a bag of Cheetos. <laughs> so. I wouldn't tell her you had any snacks or you won't have them long. Yeah. Oh, my M&Ms right. M &M will be guarded with my life. That's not fair. She's she's in the best shape of all of us. <laughs> I was just looking. I had like, I had like chili on my shirt. That's <laughs> <laughs> what you did. <laughs> Joe, you throw me off with that red shirt. Oh, so, I just, hey, David. Hey, David. Hey. hey. <laughs> Yeah, we I, we lost link. You. I don't know why. I How just sent you? it to you because I, I I couldn't find it either. Casey <laughs> had to find it for me. <laughs> I'll tell you what I do. Okay, the minute somebody sends me a link, I save it to my calendar under the day under okay. under notes because I will is this lose a lesson. And I will forget. This, this <laughs> is a pro this tip. is a lesson. You're smarter <laughs> than we are. Smarter than I am. No, because they, uh, I know that in, like five minutes before, I'm going to get a call from my dad saying, I can't find the link. So I'm, I'm going to gonna cut to the chase. I'm ready. And <laughs> well, Keith was there. already here. He was saying, well, he's every he arrived early. Yeah, that's right. Casey, yeah. you already said it last What's time. Your... You are the one that leads the ducks. I it is true. Baby ducks. I I am in Leads charge of all the baby ducks, and I like have to I like I said. I was just telling the story, David, about how your wife gave us uh, some M and M's and peanuts. Yes, and you know I was all excited, and I looked over there, and she'd eaten both bags. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you were you were at the house, and you were you were heading off, and we just decided that you needed emergency rations. <laughs> Um, yeah, we did. Grateful. And Casey, and Casey <laughs> still did. remember it, right? You don't get enough to eat. <laughs> David, uh, since you haven't been on, just going over this, they've heard it before. But uh, if there's anything you don't want to talk about, no problem. We will note it now. Uh, when we uh, we get finished with this, David, we'll write you a note that says, please cut all the Lansdales. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> please cut from beginning to end. Thank you. 
That would be an exhaustive edit. Do I look red to you? I can't figure out yeah. I'm looking up here and you all look normal and I look like I'm a lobster. I don't know. <laughs> so if you can, I don't know. I need something. I don't can know. We get one of those, you can we get a cat filter for David or how's that work? <laughs> All right. I guess you could say I look healthy. I don't know. That's you right. Guys, you guys ready? Look at me. I look pale. I'm always I'm always the pale guy. <laughs> Must be Irish. accurate. Welcome to Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan Lafaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. <laughs> and uh, you can find us on uh, YouTube for the video version. Audio version is wherever you listen to your podcast. Today, we're joined by David Morrell. He's most notoriously noted for uh, his debut novel, First Blood, um, and also worth noting, uh, the nonfiction book that is right up there next to On Writing with Stephen King, the successful novelist. Um, say hello, David. Hi, uh, n- uh, nice to see everybody. You too. Hi, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Joe, Joe Lansdale joins us today. Say hi, Joe. Hi, Joe. <laughs> uh, you got me again, you bastard. Uh, <laughs> David knew that was coming. <laughs> I did. We Keith, all knew yeah. it was coming. Keith <laughs> as well. He's here with his miraculous beard. Say hello, Keith. Hello, and the beard says hello. Oh, okay. And then, <laughs> Casey Lansdale is also here. Say hello, Casey. Hi, guys. Also, Casey's beard. There's Casey. <laughs> Who's she a beard of for? Oh, oh. oh. That's, that's, no, that's not a shot at you. happening. This what? is inappropriate. A microcosm got, of my life right we, here on this video. We, we got a minute in. Oh my to, to be fair, I, I feel like I'm at the point where I can be like the unwanted brother, as I said before yeah. to you and Keith. Hi, Joe, Daddy. Um, whoa, that's awkward. Uh, <laughs> David, <laughs> David. Um, so. A new kind of question that we don't really ask guests. We usually ask what got you into this or that, but I, I'm really, this ties into when we had the land sales on last time, um, which was you won, uh, you won a uh, award for the HWA back in 1988. Um, the title is slipping me burning. Um it, It's a, it's a novella called oranges for anguish blue for insanity. That's it for the land sales. It was just announced recently that um, Karen, finally has an award named after her rightfully so um for you know establishing the hwa then called hal so i'd like to know what your part or association with hwa is if at all because i I wasn't aware of that until i you know i was looking around with uh brennan actually uh i have two other uh stokers for another novella and for a novel uh creepers um i'm I was there a little later than uh, Karen and Joe and uh, Dean Kuntz was was extremely instrumental. And uh, if memory serves, Harlan Ellison was involved at that time. For the and, award itself. Yeah. 
And mm-hmm. I, um, and, and back then, if you were, uh, as, as we all are, fans of horror and, and adjacent genres, where you went was to uh, the World Fantasy Convention. Uh, and that, you know, we, we, we had our own little mini convention at World Fantasy. And, and some, this would be the first one I went to. It was in 1979. And um, it's my understanding that conversations evolved from those meetings to say we should have our own organization. And HWA uh, started. <clears throat> and at that point, in fact, there's there's one little wrinkle here because you said it was called Howl at one time. At one time, HWA stood for Horror Writers of America. And uh, I remember being at the meeting, a uh, big meeting, where they were saying this is far too, far too insular and we need to, to spread it. And so uh, with a very easy adjustment, it became Horror Writers Association using the same HWA so that it wasn't a... Um, but um, it's you know it was always a welcoming, very very exciting uh, get together, and I I was happy. I uh, to, I can't say I was involved in the organization, but um, I I sure you know promoted uh, as much as I could uh, um, and got other writers to join it. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, it, it, one of the things that came along was when. Uh, we were in the elevator with the McCammons, and I don't remember. It was a World Fantasy Convention, just like Dave yeah. was saying. We all went to those, and and um, Rick and Sally were were uh, standing in front of us. We'd never met them, but I said something. He said, oh, I recognize that. That's Texas, because he was Southern, you know. <laughs> and so when we got off the elevator, we started talking, because we, you know, we had all were reading each other's stuff as things then. And he said, yeah, I've been trying to put this organization together uh, called HAL, you know, uh, our occult writers league, but he, he said, I'm just, I know I'm not going to do it because it's just so much work. And, and, uh, Karen popped up, uh, at which she might've regretted later and said, I'll do it. And then, uh, that's, that she started getting names at the conventions, you know? And of course we already knew a, a ton of people and we're in communication with them just cause, you know, we were all, we all wrote each other back then, which, you know, wasn't on the email. It was actual. It was physical letters. Yeah, physical letters. Tablet and uh, the, um, the chisel, right? Is that the yeah, one? Yes, the chisel, right. <laughs> in the stone uh, Yeah. Right, Remember, just, I'm seeing you Thursdays. Just making sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. But there there was, uh, you know, there was a, um, <clears throat> a big, you can't, it's hard to understand <clears throat> now at this moment in time, even though you guys are oriented, how much excitement there was about horror at that time. Yes. And uh, Stephen King was the big push, but really it was around, certainly it's been around a long time, but at that point in time, there were these small magazines like Whispers and uh, Weird Tales and uh, uh, that, that had been revived. And there was like a, a couple of others along that line. They were all low underground sort of magazines and they were publishing horror stories. And then when King made made it a, I guess what you would call a commercial genre. Cause I think that's when it really became a commercial genre. I mean, you'd had the exorcist, you'd had things by hour 11 that were um, certainly horror, but there was no, you know, what you would call a commercial genre. There were books that were sometimes horror, but when King came along and, and uh, that really got everybody excited. And a lot of people in science fiction, especially bailed from science fiction and jumped into horror. And it's probably because there was suddenly, at least at that period in time, a lot of money in horror 
And in fact, you had a lot of people that made a lot of money in horror <clears throat> for about five or six years and then just totally disappeared, you know, never wrote another thing or they wrote something else. So it was an amazing time. And so the, everything was just right when we stepped on that elevator. And, and it's and, worth, uh, we, we should add our dear departed friend, Peter Straub, uh, who yes. Peter, Peter came in after, after Steve and was adding another, um, another element to it. Steve, um, uh, uh, Peter had a, a kind of an, uh, and I say this in the best way, an academic approach to horror. He was, yeah. he was approaching it from a very literary, he'd been, he was in the university world and he, and he, and that, that helped um, add a dimension to it. And, and this went on when another name that, that we should revere is Charlie Grant, mm. uh, Charles Grant, yeah. who did um, the shadows, a series for Doubleday, a mm. series of anthologies um, that uh, were just wonderful. And, and I, uh, you know, uh, uh, and he would go around the, the conventions at HWA and, and, you know, recruit people in effect to say, Hey, do you want to write for this? It, you know, Charlie, yeah. He doesn't get enough, uh, enough. He was never a big seller, but behind the scenes, he was a, a big promoter of the genre. Right. He was one of the bigger. I, I think his mo I think that was his most impressive thing was the fact that he was a, an editor and a promoter more even than his own work, because that's what a lot of people knew him as. And Doubleday was printing those books. And Pat Labrudo, a guy that nobody yes. thinks about as much as they should, was an editor over at Doubleday who uh, first published me in hardback. I'd been published in paper, but he first published me in hardback. But he was also doing writers that, you know, you say this, it sounds bad, but but like Manly Wade Wellman, who were on the decline, at least as far as like being known and the fact of their age and what have you at that time. And he published them and he published new writers. I think he published Charlie and all kinds of different people. And he certainly did uh, Shadows uh, with Charlie editing there. And, yeah. and so he's a guy that uh, was a very important editor that nobody really seems to mention and should, you know, Pat Liberto, Pat uh, Liberto, Pat, Pat Liberto. Yeah. That's a, actually, I, I wasn't familiar with the name. He's a good friend did. of mine. I mean, you know, he and I are in contact all the time. He did some uh, uh, really excellent anthologies as well. Just as Charlie did. Um, I, I was in a couple of them. I like, I, I hadn't talked to Pat in years, but I really ran, you know, these were very creative conversations. Uh, very exciting. Yeah, it's different. You know, and I just think about David talking about the Bram Stoker. He used to say, okay, we're both up for this award this time. <laughs> and he said, I think you're going to win it, you know. And he was right. I did. You have a – you have a – all right. Now, th there you go. I'm leaving now. <laughs> you have a lot of Stokers. You've got too many. A few. And, and it should have he, been – He can build a house out of those houses. Let me know. Yeah. yeah. Speaking – David, I'm you, a small city. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned right. anthologies, and actually this is right up there for me. It's with you, Joe, yeah. Joyce Carol Oates, Clyde Barker, Neil Gain. It, it, for those that can't see it, um, I'm holding up uh, The King is Dead, Tales of Lou El Reed's in that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's just so many wonderful names in here. Um, but for those interested, that's actually where Baba Hotep first showed up, his Joe's short story. Um, I want to, before we go elsewhere, I... I since we didn't talk about it on air, I'd like to hear it for those that may not be aware of it or heard the last episode with you guys. Um, we talked about Karen quite a bit. Uh, and then from that point to now, 
the awards named after her. I would like to hear you guys what you think. Like, what does that mean to your family that it's um, that other people outside of your inner circle that mo- a lot of people you don't even know, um, Casey, go first. I <laughs> I say, no, because I just want to say that, like, because of that inner, it's something we've talked about internally and amongst people that um, we're close to, but that interview really is what kicked it in. And I think you being outside of our immediate circle, even though there was awkward um, sibling and and you called my dad, daddy at the beginning, but other than that, I like that you felt like you needed to, to make that point there. Patrick. I was, well, Joe's a I handsome son of a bitch. Too, <laughs> now you're like, well, this could have gone either way. So let me clarify. <laughs> he said no in his eyes. Outside of our immediate circle that, yeah. and, and I think it sort of brought a moment of validation to all of us that we just thought like, yeah, as a matter of fact, because it's one thing when we think, oh, our mom should be honored. Our, you know, the spouse should be honored. But when someone else is like, wait a minute, why hasn't she then, then it really put things into motion. And I was actually starting this whole written thing. I was going to do a petition. And then we mentioned it to a friend of ours and the friend, bless her, Judy Pankos, she worked fast and she'd already yep. written her um, chapter at the HWA. And she was already in touch with John, who is the president of the HWA. And, uh, uh, yes. Go ahead, Keith. I, I was okay. just going to add some context for those that, you, since y'all don't know Judy, but Judy is the one who originally did a song for my original Christmas with the dead and was also very instrumental and the, the biggest driving force behind the musical version of Christmas with the Dead. Oh, okay. um, and let me tell you, I'm going to say it every time it comes up, the musical version is the best version of it to ever exist. Mm, it's better I than my cannot, short story and better than Keith's Spring I cannot wait for that to finally make the rounds because it is the best version. Right. And the point of it is that just because of that, that is sort of what kicked it into high gear and I just want to say thank yep. you to you guys because you're saying that and your sort of support behind it. And you and I, Patrick, you know, we had some dialogue after an email kind of going back and crafting and putting it all together. It really, um, it, it was really appreciated. And then uh, John Palisano, as dad mentioned, you know, very nice man. And he just moved so quickly. And it was very nice to see how there was no red tape. It was just like, oh, she did some work. She wasn't acknowledged. Let's let's fix that. And then overnight mm-hmm. said, we've changed the name of the award. We want to be sure that she gets that recognition. Right. What do you think of this? So it was it was really great. And you guys were the uh, impetus for that happening. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would you, know, never... you know, the funny thing is that. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, Brian, and I would have never in a million years even even if we planned that, that that's beyond anything that me and him ever would have dreamed of. So that like, we love your family. So that, it was that really nice. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, the thing is, is people known that for years, there'd even been articles about how she had found it and how she'd gone around and got all this stuff, but it never, it's sort of like it wouldn't, it bounced off because she's, right. she's very modest. It's yes. not her thing, but people like Harlan and 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 Dean and Rick McCammon and Melissa Mia Hall, who's no longer with us, and all of these people at the beginning, but they all knew it. And everybody just thought, well, everybody knows Karen did that. And it just kind of went on and on. And she, you know, I I think to, to she's just not she's not that important to her to be recognized. But when she was, she really appreciated it. Right. I mean, she got the Richard. That's award. amazing. 
like mm-hmm. 10 years ago. So they did have a moment, yeah. but it just was, it it's just sort of was like a moment that, you know, passed in the wind. So just you guys yeah. doing that sort of put a fire under everybody. So it was really nice to see really, really. I remember cool. when she got the Richard Lyon award, she came up, she pretty much said, thank you. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was, was about it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I think she said a little more, but it wasn't much more than that. It's maybe a sentence. That's how she is. You know, she, that's it. Keith, um, I actually have a good segue to something uh, to David's um, the successful novelist with this specifically, but I don't want to cut you off if you have anything to say. If not, just give me a. No, I think, I mean, Casey summed it up really well. There's there's no nothing more that I can say than ditto for that one. So, um, yeah, we we had no idea. Of course, it's it's the same exact as she was saying. We, we've been talking about it for years and it's it's been talked about to the point where I was just like, I don't think anybody's ever going to take note. And it was wild to think that we went from the conversation to it was done in just a matter of days, uh, probably weeks. But it was it was very like quick. Right. Um, and I again, Judy had a lot to do with that. So not to be, did. you know. <clears throat> Not, not to give her the mom treatment to really, you know. No, and yeah, no, absolutely. And and Judy was definitely a, a, a big proponent as well. But either way, yeah, no, we, we really appreciate it. But it, I do think Casey's right. It was because somebody other than us was starting to take note. And that's what that's what we needed. It blows my yeah, mind. And, and the, go ahead, man. Go ahead. Uh, I just got to say it blows my mind. And honestly, like. Just I'll strip away all my bullshit. It pisses me off. My Irish temper just like it makes me so mad that someone that created this that I guarantee a lot of new people and that could go back 10 years or longer. Don't even know who she is. And and that's why it makes me mad that there's not even like about how the how the HWA started page. It's 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 mind boggling. Go ahead, Joe. Well, you know, it was supposed to have been changed way back when they gave the Richard Lehman Award. They were going to they, they and there were there were places where it talked about it. But for whatever reason, it, I think in the field, when you have people that are well known, uh, it just kind of bounces off, you know, because they're, they're more paying attention to the well known. And then uh, Karen was the one that was working, by, you know, behind the scenes and making it happen. And people like David being a member because, you know, bestseller and great writer and 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 you had you know all these other names that were there like you know peter and uh and at that time i was i was a new writer at that time Mm. but there were so many writers i think that stood at harlan and stood up and stepped up harlan actually knew the person who did the sculptor a sculpt sculpting for the bram stoker award the little house you know and because originally there was just going to be some simple award he said why don't we do this right and, uh, you know, Harlan can always, he, he could always maybe go too far, <laughs> but he was absolutely right this time. Uh, and uh, I remember one time when we were in New York, these guys were there, David was there. I was there. We had a oral horror convention. We were on a panel with Harlan and we thought, we thought David might kill him. <laughs> I remember, I remember this. I remember that. that very you remember that. And we all love, we all I love mean, crazy Harlan. I, I had never met Harlan before. This was my first like time to ever meet him. And they had the entire row of writers up there. And I don't remember exactly how many, but it was, it was like eight writers. I mean, it was, it was Quite a few. not the Harlan Ellison show, but that was not going to stop him. <laughs> and he was about seated middle. And you know? It was the introduction of the first writer, the second writer, the third writer, Dad Harlan. And Harlan says, I'm not going to say one thing and I'm not going to say anything else. 
And then he talked for an hour. <laughs> did not let anybody else get a word in. Well, but the, 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 the corollary to that was I managed to squeeze in a little bit of time. <laughs> and I still remember this. You, you guys made, I mean, this is, these are those moments. And, and he was looking at me and looking at me and I was, and he said, you're a windy bastard, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> in right. front of And then he went back to do his routine. Uh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, isn't that where like I was there and I don't think I I don't know if I was a part of this. I think it's been I think I was too young to remember. I, I think it was you, David, that I was chewing gum and Harlan came over and was like, hey, women shouldn't be chewing gum. And, rah, 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 rah. and David's like, do you like this is Lansdale's daughter. She can chew gum if she wants. That's right. <laughs> and like, you still can. I have no idea what's happening. And there he is. My hero. Forever and ever. That was that went upstairs before because I think Casey was there chewing gum because she was there to get a picture with Harlan. No, no she was there to sign my book. I was get, yeah, that's right. Get I my get, book sign. There is that he and David were sitting by each other. Where is that picture of yeah. Casey and Harlan? And they neither of them <laughs> look happy to be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll never forget it. David was my hero. He's like, she can chew gum. Yeah. <laughs> the, the world is full of Harlan yeah. Ellison stories, and I, I'm, yeah. you, you yeah. may remember I, that. I, that he is <clears throat> Harlan had a run in with Frank Sinatra that it's in a very famous yep. essay called Frank Sinatra has a cold with Gay Talese. And, and uh, <clears throat> Harlan showed up for he was doing an interview and Sinatra looks at him and goes over and insults the hell out of him because he's wearing cowboy boots. And <clears throat> there's no record that Harlan actually treated him, Frank, the way he treated the rest of us. I think he may have been quiet because <laughs> Frank had his bodyguard there, you know, but Frank, you know, actually, that's was weird as hell. The but least, what it is, is that Harlan actually, they were playing pool and uh, Sinatra's guy said, you know, Frank wants to play pool. And he said, I don't care. I don't care. I'm, I'm playing pool. And he had on those boots, and then Sinatra came around. He said, "You're supposed to wear a tie in here." And the boots, and, and Harlan says, "No, I don't, I'm not going to do that. I don't care who you are." And and that's no. a, there's, there's a whole gay Talese article that then, has, talks the about fun star by blow. Frank, yeah, the, yeah. Sinatra has a cold. It's cold. <clears throat> I got to look that yeah. up. And so, the, and Sinatra didn't do anything. And when Harlan got through, he left. I, I remember going upstairs at that same convention. I went into there having like room parties. And I went in and Harlan's stressed out on the bed, you know, and everybody else is around and they're all talking. And he went, yeah, lands down. He always talked like the penguin to me. I, I would get like <laughs> messages on my answering machine. And we got, I'd turn it on and go, yeah, lands down. <laughs> but, but anyway, I went in and he said, uh, yeah, you know what? I mean, I guess I you do that martial arts, you know, I know I study with. I said, well, who? He said, Bruce Lee. I said, well, how come you didn't learn anything? I guess it's good social media wasn't around when he was uh no, you know it wasn't. <laughs> it's a good thing. No. It's a so, good thing. <laughs> so this is a great segue to say we're focusing on basically who came before us, who paved the way. And David, you, you talk about that quite a bit in, in the successful novelist about um specifically, you know, know your Basically, right. know your shit. Well, th- yes, and it, when it comes to horror, uh, uh, and this comes out of uh, Stephen King's, um, <clears throat> we all call him Steve, but his name is Stephen King, uh, Dance Macabre, 
uh, his his book about horror nonfiction, and he talks about in the fifties how um, uh, Block and um, <clears throat> the, uh, folks of that sort were established. Uh, Richard Matheson um, and were establishing a, 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 a basis for horror, and then moving into the sixties and the early seventies, and and Joe mentioned some of this Ira Levin. Um, Blatty, and then uh, uh, author that I'm very fond of, Thomas Tryon, mm. and a book oh, yeah. called Harvest yeah. Home. And Steve grouped those three together as an as a n- another influential. And then, of course, he didn't mention himself in Dance Macabre, but uh, you can sense that the torch was being passed. And uh, <clears throat> I I believe. I believe that authors should know the history of what they do. And I was once a, um, a Toastmaster at uh, a, a Horror Writers Association conference. This was at the banquet. And I'd been at uh, the, the books store and they had, saw, they had several copies of Dracula for sale. And people were talking about Dracula only in terms of the movie. And I began to get a sense that folks hadn't read the basics. So I had a prepared speech um, that night and I just didn't bother. I, I said, let's have a show of hands. And they were amazingly honest. How many of you have read Bam, Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is a wonderful novel. That's just, if I could say I'd written it, I, I wouldn't have to do anything else. <laughs> and, and to their credit, about two thirds of the audience at the banquet held up their hands to say they had not read Dracula. So then we got into, have you read Frankenstein? Have you read, you know, and we go through, you know, and it was, um, I mean, it was a good example, I thought, of how, you know, we should feel uh, obligated to know our roots in order to know what's been done and what hasn't been done in order to grow from it. David, I yeah, like, you know, you really yeah. nailed it there. And I, I have that trouble with a lot of people who don't feel like they need to read it. And they feel, here the, man, the old guy just crackles on about those old books. But, but you know, <laughs> I even I remember reading The the Lair of the White Worm and, and yeah. uh, the, the Jewel of the Seven Stars, all of those by uh, Bram Stoker. Not nowhere near as good as Dracula. But, you know, you always tried to read the classics, but I would also try to adventure into these other books that they wrote, at least one other, and try to see what was going on with it and try mm-hmm. to find out, you know, why is why is this guy so impressive? What else did he do? And and then uh, or why is this woman so impressive? What else did she do? And so on, you know, and I, I still believe that that's one of the reasons that most people write shitty, frankly, is that they haven't read enough and they don't have enough prose inside their head to be able to turn their own prose because you have to have that experience to write well. And I don't give a fuck what anybody says. That's just the law. That's right the that law. Right well, tell us what you feel. Yeah. Well, David, I was, hoping, I was hoping that that story was going to end with you, Andy Kaufman, and then showing up and be like, who's read Dracula? Nobody? All right. Chapter one. <laughs> that, would be, that would be cool. But Dracula is one of the really great novels uh, i mean it's 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 uh formally inventive it has serious themes it uh, and my god that 50 page chase at the end uh, i mean oh, yeah. <clears throat> you can't can't equal it um and and you got uh, Bowie knives and texans yeah <laughs> <laughs> Bowie knives and texans you know yeah you know the the the, the thing about that novel too when i read it 
and knowing when it was written, I said, damn, this guy was way ahead of his time. You know, he had like the, whatever was the, the current technology of that time. Yes. Like those discs where they had, you know, uh, uh, phones. where you could talk in. Yeah. Yeah. Record things early on that was in that book. Well, you know, you look at it now and go, well, that old stuff, but man, when he did that, Nobody was doing that. And he would have segues where he would move off of a certain scene and move into a, no one was ever more inventive than that in a horror novel. Um, I think that you see some of that with ghost story and you see some of that with Steve's novels later on and some other people. But when you look at it and you think, wait a minute, when did this guy write this book? And he was using the, he's got the telegraph. He's got, it's done wrong, but he's got blood trans fusions yeah uh, he's we'll got um, <laughs> a, 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 all kinds of you know one one uh i think uh talking about St- steve king he once did an introduction uh to uh some horror novels which included dracula and he he called dracula an example of how modern science could defeat ancient superstition and i thought that's that's yeah. pretty good yeah and he, yeah, he said, that, that's to that volume. Is that to the volume with also Frankenstein and uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hell David, David, you mentioned how if you wrote Dracula, that'd be kind of, oh, there it is. Yeah. I would be happy. <clears throat> yeah. And <laughs> I think it's funny because, you know, you, you just posted about it today um, that it's the 50th, 50th year for First Blood. And I mean, it's an international hit book and film wise, you know, with two two um, two spinoffs of it. So I'm curious. You've probably got asked a million times. So sorry, but I just got to ask, how's it feel like? How's it feel that that was your that was your first book that you had published? It it, it, It doesn't happen. It's very unreal. A a, a few years ago, I, I was asked to do an introduction for Ira Levin's rosemary's baby the 50th anniversary oh so well i mean oh wow you know what a thing to be asked to yeah. do so <clears throat> so i wrote it and as i'm writing it i thought god this is really cool i, I mean i raised here to enjoy it but you know 50 years and there's you know the still in print and all that and then then this year i realized well wait a minute you know i can i can say that about first blood and when i think about yeah. it, it took me three years to write it and and I was learning and there were lots of, you know, detours. And many times when I didn't <clears throat> want, I didn't feel that I would be able to finish it. And my, my agent, Henry Morrison at the time, because uh, I was trying to find a new way to write action. Uh, you know, none of this uh, shot rang out stuff. And, 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 and how could one do it as if it had never been written before? I mean, what a, what a challenge. Yeah. And, and my agent said, you know, there's so much action in this. I don't, Think I think we maybe get a paperback, but I think that'll be the end of it. And to <laughs> our, our great surprise, in six weeks, that it sold to a hardback house, and then to a further great surprise, it was reviewed everywhere. We all know about first novels and how hard it is to to get the attention. And and Time, Newsweek, Life Magazine, Saturday Review, a lot of these places don't exist anymore. New York Times, Chicago Tribune, it was it was reviewed everywhere. And I mean doesn't happen that way. So I'm, you know, I just, sometimes good stuff happens. Uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm, uh, it, it's obviously a, a kick and uh, I'm, I'm very aware of how lucky I was. 
and couldn't have happened. Hey, to me you weren't lucky. You worked hard on that novel. Yeah. That, I, that did, I did work. I did work very hard yeah. on it. Yeah. 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 That's I why was your lucky after good. slaving on it for three years. <laughs> <laughs> um, wait a minute. Yeah. Well, I didn't yeah, stop. Didn't lucky. Stop. That's not lucky. That, that's bullshit. That's, yeah. that's, that's the only thing. So Sometimes you have you're, to you're, be at the right time at the right place. Is an argument that whole thing about luck happens to people that work hard. Well, there's that. Better but imagine there, if yeah. it had been published in 1975, it wouldn't have happened. Right. The, the history, 72 was the sweet spot for that novel. And, you know, so how, you know, the fates or how the heck this happens, I don't know. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, somebody, uh, somebody said, um, and, and this really jolted me. They said, if you look at novels that became movie characters, in the 20th century, you you have Tarzan, you have Sherlock Holmes, you have James Bond, you have Rambo, and you have Harry Potter. Wow! And and yeah. that you know, I I I confess, I felt like somebody hit me on the side of the head, uh, you know, putting in that context. And again, you know, well, you know, and, you reinvented the uh, suspense novel of that era, the thriller, not the suspense novel. You know, people have different terms, but I, th I think. I think the other thing is I think it's a literary novel. I think it's a novel that really has literary themes and deals with those. And and I think that uh, those people who think that literary novels shouldn't have action in them or shouldn't have, uh, you know, excitement in them are writing very boring novels. That doesn't mean they all have to have, you know, shootouts or killings or whatever, but there's a momentum that has more to do with with the way it's written than it actually does with what's happening in the book at times. And I, when I read that, I thought, you know, this is, it's, it was lean, it was fast, and yet it, it developed those themes instantly. I mean, he's right there beside the road and we're in, in that, uh, in, in the book, in the book, you know, you're just, he's there, he is and walking along. And then now we've got Rambo and who, and, and you know, when you read that, you know, and David bless his heart, he killed him off at the end I and, uh, I, I, to. and then had to come back and write another novel about him. <laughs> And uh, no, it was called Rambo, around. the undead. <laughs> uh, the undead. Well, there's a there's a slight story in that the 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 the, the, the company that made the Rambo films, Carol Co, um, had asked me. Uh, they read read the contract, and I in my contract for the movies, I have print control of the character. And so, if they wanted a novelization, which in those days were popular publications. Mm -hmm. then they had to use me and I had read the, <clears throat> I had read the, uh, the shooting script and it was 80, it was 85 pages perhaps. And it was very lean. There, there wasn't much to it. And, um, it, but if I then asked, I said, you know, I don't think there's anything here. What else have you got? And they said, well, there's this James Cameron script. And now at the time, nobody knew who James Cameron was, but I knew who James Cameron was. I said, <laughs> what? He said, yeah, we didn't use it. I said, you own it? And he said, yeah, send it to me. So, you know, so we have like the, the, my, my name's on it. Sylvester Stallone's name on, is on it. And James Cameron is uh, justifiably. And, and anyhow, so I said, all right, I do it because. I saw an opportunity to expand on what uh, to you know to try to try to innovate what a novelization could be. So the point of the story is that I had a problem because I killed Rambo at the end of the novel, and I would not rewrite that ending. That's the way it has to be. So how the hell am I coming back 
with these novelizations. Zombo. And I was, I was, I was, I was just so. So I was living in Iowa at the time at the and and uh, uh, taught taught at the University of Iowa in Iowa City. And another Iowa author, Max Allen Collins, was in town, and who is oh, yeah. the road to perdition, Dick Tracy, a wonderful, wonderful writer, and and very collegial. So I said to him, I said, Max, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, you know, I I think it'd be fun to do these, but hey, you know. And he said, no problem at all, David. Just have a note at the beginning. It says in my novel, First Blood, Rambo died in the movies he lives. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's a great right. idea. You know what you, you, you were very Problem solved. Yeah. You were very fortunate when you started writing that novel because you had read the first one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a leg up on it. I, I had a layup. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, well, and and what's funny is how easily people will go with it if it's w- well done. You know, if the story is nobody good. only okay. a, every every once in a while somebody says what the. <laughs> so I said I blame it on Max. I said Max Max convinced me to do it. That's great, David. You dimension, man. You, you said that it's a good thing it didn't uh, come out in '75. And I'm maybe I read this in the the nonfiction book, but. I know that 73 was the last year, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but 73 was the last year that they had drafts for Vietnam, came out in 72. So that's still at a pretty I was drafted. (laughs) You were drafted? I was drafted, I think it was in 72, and I refused to go. And they told me I was going to prison, which I, yep, and which (laughs) I knew was going to happen. So I went home and got my stuff in order, as they suggested, and they had a date for me to come back. I caught the bus. Got I did get a free sack lunch both both times. So <laughs> anyway, uh, when I arrived, they said, because um, I'd already been over this, and I told them I'm not going. And I said I'm not I, I, I'm I'm not going to run either because I'm not I'm not going to do that. I'm not leaving my country. I'm opposed to this war, and that's all there is to it. And they sent me and said, go see the psychiatrist. I was in there about ten minutes. They sent me out and gave me a one why. And I, I, you know, I, I went home. My number was, my number was 28, 28, 28. But I always felt like they threw me a bone. And it may have been because at that time they were already beginning to see that this was winding down. And I think the other thing is because I refused to, I refused to be a conscientious objector in the classic sense because they said, would you have fought in World War II? And I said, yes. I said, I would have, you know, I might have fought in World War One, you know, but I would not from what I see now that this, you know, I'm opposed to this war. And I, I was shocked. I mean, I went home with my sack lunch, just stunned, you know, because <laughs> when they went, told me to go home and get my stuff in order, I went and got both pairs of underwear and my socks I already had on. And so then I, I was ready to go back and uh, I went back and I, I told my mom and dad, I'm, I, I'll see you in 18 months. Cause that's what you did. You went in for 18 months and uh, I was very lucky. It didn't happen. That's great. But I, and, and I still, those are my convictions. I'm proud of them. Um, you know, the, the thing is I dropped out of college to be drafted. <clears throat> my number was 28. I had a college deferment. I dropped out to be drafted that I would not do again. Cause that was just young and stupid mm-hmm. and idealistic mm-hmm. in a, in a dumb way. Wow. I, I didn't know any, damn, I learned a lot every time you guys are on, but uh, yeah. I, I let me, let me say something about David before you go any farther. Is that we got three words in? <laughs> yeah, got three Almost. words. No, I, uh, not easy. When, when I was uh, when I was going to when I first read 
you know, uh, First Blood, it was a different way of doing a thriller. I, I, you know, I don't know that if David invented that or not, but I kind of felt like he did. It wasn't that nobody had written a thriller before, but there was a there was a certain approach to it, and not not only in the style, but in the literary backbeat that the whole thing had, and the way the momentum was, and the fact that he wrote it in such a way where it, uh, you know, it didn't have the usual. The burly man walks down the road with his mm-hmm. big rifle on his shoulder, on his massive shoulder. Or stuff yeah. like that, which was kind of the thriller back then. And the other thing is that this, this when David was talking about novelizations, a lot of people don't remember this, but there was a period in time and that era when novelizations were thought of with some pride. And people did things like Taxi Driver, and mm-hmm. that novelization is really good. And uh, and there's several other uh, novels that were made from uh, movie, movies like. Uh, uh, um, I think American Gigolo was that way too, you know, and there were several others like that and they were doing it as an art. They weren't just doing it to <clears throat> fill a contract, you know, looking at the, uh, uh, the script and adding four more words. It wasn't like that. They were really doing something unique. And sometimes they were very different than the, um, the script or the movie that was going to happen, you know, and then later on that disappeared and went back to just hacking them out. But there was oh. a moment in time when that was kind of a new division. And the yeah. fact that this book has gone on for 50 years in the way that it has is is proof that what you were doing was different and and page turning for people because it wouldn't last yeah. if, it wasn't, if it didn't but, happen. But you know, if we want to talk about, you know, the forebearers, because we all learn from somebody else, <clears throat> there is a British suspense writer named Jeffrey, Jeffrey Household. And he's that spelled with a G, G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y. I knew that too. Uh, and he had written you win, job. A, Good job. He wrote a book called Rogue Male, R-O-G-U-E, Male, M-A-L-E, about a British big game hunter that stops Hitler on the eve of the Second World War. And it was published in 1939. And the, it's a great idea. But what's, what's even greater is that the book starts on the, the first pages, he gets caught. We never we never yeah. see the stalking. He's caught and it's an escape novel. And um, I had a science fiction uh, writer who was a teacher. Do, uh, do you guys know the name William Ten? Oh, um, yeah. Book. Absolutely. <laughs> well, <laughs> William, well, he was my teacher. He wrote great science fiction. Yes, stories, he, exactly. And his real name was uh, his, his uh, you know, his civilian Class. name was Philip Class. And he was very kind to me at Penn State. And when he saw some of the stuff I was trying to do, he said, you've been reading Jeffrey Household. And I didn't know who (laughs) Jeffrey Household was. So he had me read Rogue Mail and and I think a better book, Watcher in the Shadows. But, you know, we're talking, we're just like this, that they're they're both brilliant. And uh, and what and, and Household was a master of the chase novel. But he had this this British kind of understatement to it. And one of the things I was thinking is what if I took the the beauty that was in household, especially in the forest scenes where they're running through the forest all the time. And if I could change it so that I added the action that I wanted to put in. <clears throat> so the, 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 the tail end of this story is when, when first what was done, I contacted household, we exchanged letters for a time. And I contacted him and asked him if he'd read the book and give me a quote. So he said, send it. So I sent him the manuscript and he sent me a kind British letter 
saying, oh, dear me, no, I can't possibly give you a quote for this book. There's too much blood in it. And, you know, I thought, <laughs> thought maybe the, the title is a clue. So, so you guys know Kim Newman? Kim yep. Newman? Yeah, the right. science so fiction some, writer. Some years later, a rogue male was uh, the, the movie of rogue male, Manhunt. There are a couple of versions, but one's called Manhunt with Fritz Lang. And to pat it out, you know, to give the extras, that Kim Newman did a really interesting on-camera discussion about the novel. And I, 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 you know, it's so ironic how life works out. So he's telling the viewer, and I'm watching this, and I just was curious what he'd say about the novel and about the movie. And Kim says, now, Jeffrey Haldol isn't read as much these days as he once was. But if you want to get an idea of what he's like, read David Morell. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, okay, I really I thought, see, well, you know, I see that though. I see household would be turning in his grave, right? Because it, it wasn't for yeah. him. Yeah, I see the connection with blood. What you just sort of have on your Jeffrey household with blood. <laughs> yeah. You know, I went, I visited with Kim Newman once in uh, uh, London. I think we were, yeah. it was in England anyway. I believe we were Who in the London. the hell have you been out with, man? Out. What's that? <laughs> Who have you not hung? You've hung out with everyone. Uh, oh well, we we meet everybody because we, you know, we used to meet a lot more people. We go to these conventions. Everybody went. Everybody mm. went. But anyway, I, he, he had a tea at his house, and it was very mm. formal. You know, he was oh, very he dressed like a, a almost Victorian. Yes, and he was a very interesting, very smart guy. And we come in, we're all having a little tea, and I'm going. The hell, man! Covered in cookie fingers. crumbs. <laughs> yeah. Tea down your front. Like, you I'm sorry, I spilled tea yeah. on everything. You got, you got your milk broken. with it. You got milk and cookies. <laughs> I want some milk and cookies. <laughs> <laughs> and he wrote Anno Dracula. If, if you want to read a kind of cool uh, book, Anno Dracula is one of them. I also wrote an introduction to one of his uh, books he did on westerns. Oh. You know, what's interesting is Chuck Palahniuk actually did a, a forward to the same book that you did, David, Ira Levin's uh, Rosemary's Baby. Um, I don't know what edition that was, but that's that's pretty neat. Um, before we get off track, <laughs> I just wanted to comment one more thing in First Blood, how I thought it was really cool how you have the Korean War vet who um, we I mean, Joe and I briefly talked about Cho Sing Reservoir, but that that bottom line is you, you got to be some kind of. <clears throat> just beast after that like you you've seen the worst of the worst and you somehow survived frozen hell um and it's come down to him and one kid in another war that korean war vets may have looked down on i mean the korean war vets when they came back most of them no one really paid attention and vietnam war vets you know they're getting the complete opposite treatment yeah. where they're they're spit on but 72 um they were that was pretty much at the height of it so um, I, I found that to be really fascinating with the father son sort of thing. And, um, there's no end to this. I'm just trailing off. Brennan, you haven't talked yet. Why don't you jump in? I just want you to know, say I, good I, job. <laughs> I, I am okay with that. Cause if somebody's tuning into an episode that has Casey, Keith, Joe Lansdale and David Morrell, they're not tuning in to hear my voice. Or you know, that's, that's for sure. It, and it certainly, you know, you, you guys have no problem keeping the conversation going, but uh, David, I think Joe made a great point earlier when he said that there is, you know, there is a literary bent to first blood. Uh, and you mentioned earlier that, 
Peter Straub kind of wrote from that place of academia. And with your background, I mean, do you feel like you do the same? Uh, I do. I, I once met Oscar Peterson, the great jazz pianist. I, I, I love jazz of that era. <clears throat> and he, um, I, I, I was raised in a, in a community, Kitchener-Waterloo in Southern Ontario, about an hour's drive from Toronto. And Peterson and his, his trio, Ed Thigpen and Ray Brown, played frequently in Toronto. So my soon-to-be wife and I would drive to Toronto and, and, uh, and just listen to him all night. It was just wonderful. And he would walk around the audience and he'd talk. And I had a chance to meet him. And while I was talking to him, I realized how unique he was because he was classically trained. He could go into any concert hall and perform the great pieces, uh, but he had chosen to turn his back on that, I, not entirely, but, you know, for the improvisation of what jazz is. And so he talked to me briefly. I asked him about it and he talked to me briefly about it. And the idea that <clears throat> there's a there can be a benefit if you it's like we were talking about knowing your your origins, knowing the history of what you do, that you have a basis so that you know why you're doing what you're doing. And and uh, and so I I think and anyway we can't change what we are and I you know was in the university system for so long that I always think about it in terms of you know ways of doing technique and I did a book about John Bartha whom people don't talk about anymore but in the 70s 60s 70s and part of the 80s he was a very big deal writing what 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 we call metafiction which is sort. Of Sort of like what uh, Quentin Tarantino does in films. It's like films about and, and the goat, yeah. the goat boy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And and um, uh, I I was I was impressed by um, what he what he said was that when he started each novel, he wrote about twenty pages in each possible viewpoint, and and he calls these test borings. And I was talking to him one day. He was very good to me and allowed me to interview him. And so, you know, graduate student that I was, I, you know, I got immediately intellectual and I said, oh, I get it. The metaphor, it's like you're drilling into the ground. It's like going for oil and you come up and you got all these strata. And he looked at me like, you know, what a fool. And he says, no, no, no. I do which, with each of them to see which of them bores me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that and, you brought up. Uh, and Oscar. and, oh, and sorry, anyhow, it's it's uh, you know we are what we are, and uh, in in some ways, you know Peter and I often talked about this sort of thing. God, I miss him. He I hadn't seen him in years, but he's such a loss to us. Uh, and I, I reread Ghost Story after he, his right he, novel. He died. That's his oh. best book. And and he, but you know, in and and then you know he's using. You know, one character is called Hawthorne, you know, because he's he's drawing on Nathaniel Hawthorne. And he, you know, he names some characters after famous authors in the horror genre. And and, and, and wrote and, in their style in those sections. Yes. He wrote in he, their style in those sections. Yeah. And, and Yes, exactly. And he, you know, the Henry James uh, a bit with the turn of the screw. And I mean, it's just, right. you know, talking about how horror can be literary, which isn't necessarily the only goal. Right. But boy, he really knew how to do it. So anyway. Uh, um, and, and, you know, and, and King sort of taught him how to uh, amp it up 
when yeah. he wrote Ghost Story, he did that literary stuff, but he also brought that pulp factor to it. Yeah. And I, and he even talked about that, you know, and how that it, it sort of influenced that work and made it bigger. Cause he had done, he did a really good novel. I, I like to call Julia and they, they filmed it uh, yeah. with Mia Farrow. I think if I remember right, cause I remember seeing it. And then there was another one he did right after that before Ghost Story if you could see me now, and those yeah. were really quiet and they're good. But when he did mm. ghost story, he took a lot of King's lessons yes. and applied them to what he was already doing and kicked it all upstairs. It yeah. wasn't, it wasn't less literary. It was more so because he was willing to dance with the devil, you yeah. know? And I think that that was really, you know, really cool stuff. And, and I mean, I, I always lo- loved university, but I never, I never was able to afford to go, you know? And, yeah. and, and by the way, just as a connection, my brother was a Vietnam vet and he's a decorated Vietnam vet. Oh. We have totally different sizes of fence yeah. on that. We don't yeah, yeah. have the same, but we're very close, but, but nonetheless, it's just that, uh, you know, you, you read these things and sometimes by having read other st- things, it gives them a greater echo when you read them, you know? Well, you know, not really in this genre, but I just read um, Peter's daughter's book um, this time yes. tomorrow, and it's it's so fun. And I I don't know what I was expecting, but obviously it was interesting enough that I bought the book. But it was fun to read this book where she's, I mean, obviously it's fiction, but she's talking about her the character's father who is a science fiction writer and she's talking about <laughs> the conventions that they're going to and and she's basically telling this life story as this character and there's so many things that are relatable and talking about how she knows all these uh the guys that her dad's friends with in this book and i of course know that this has got to be her lived experience because it's very much my lived experience mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> I, I just was so happy to in in a weird way, because of what happened with Peter, I I wanted to have that a different kind of connection. So I read that book, and it was it was just really fun. And I think it's sort of a, a testament of how all those genres can kind of cross over, and and how she has a very literary type style, and you can definitely see the influence. But she's doing her own thing, and uh, it's it's not really here nor there. But I just enjoy. She's done very well. The books, her books are on the New York Times bestseller list. I mean, she's she's really carried on her father's uh, legacy, and, and and she's herself, of course. She's not yeah. imitating. And it's, nice. it's really, I mean, and, go ahead. No, I'll jump in but, about Peter, if that's all right. I want to before Joe beats me to it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, I'm just bringing this up because I don't know if you. You know this, but we, David, we were actually lucky enough to have him on last year, and he's one of those types of people where you could talk to him. We just talked to him for like an hour and a half, had emails, but he leaves such an impression on you. It's not because it's not one of those situations where he's departed. It's just he, you guys all know him. He's just that type of person, and you can feel that in his writing too, where it just it's something different. Um, just to echo you earlier, it, it it's a tremendous loss to not have him in this life anymore because he was such a kind man too. Um, that's really all I wanted to add to that. Uh, well, you know, we've lost a bunch of great ones. I mean, Harlan's been a little while back, but Harlan, uh, you know, uh, I was Andrew Vax, who's a, was a very yes. very close friend of our family, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then of course Peter Straub, and they're. You know, there's others that I'm not thinking of right them right this minute, but it just seems like there has been a, a mm. tremendous number of people dying because it's that cycle, 
you know, yeah. we're, we're all getting older. Yeah. It's scary. It. It's definitely scary to, to think about that. Um, Brennan, I'm going down a morbid path. So can you save me? Know, like, it just got dark. Brennan, bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, apropos of, of nothing. I was just, I really like that you brought up Oscar Peterson. Um, I, uh, as you can tell from my background, I actually went to school for jazz bass uh, and Ray Brown, uh, not yes. only a fabulous player, but uh, his method book is so standard and as creative a force as he was his method book just hammers you over the head with the basics because you cannot move on to mastering this stuff unless you understand, you know, what it's rooted in. And, you know, you, you, we've talked a lot about kind of knowing your influences so that you can kind of build off that, so to speak. But I mean, even to the point of uh, mastering, you know, this little thing over here, uh, yes. strunk and white so that you can, you know, grow to the level of a, uh, a Cormac McCarthy and get rid of periods and, you know, quotes and all that. But no, uh, don't get rid of periods. I'm, I'm no, going go, to get a book. I'll example. be right back. Okay. <laughs> David's out. He's like, I've had enough. No, 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 no periods. No, no. Keep your so periods. We're holding keep your quotation marks. <laughs> yeah. Look at yeah. that. Dryer's English. He is the head copy editor for Random House, Benjamin Dreyer, D-R-E-Y-E-R. And it this is the manual for copy editing. Mm. And it's the most wildly imaginative approach to teaching writing. Uh, I mean, one of the truly great ideas, I would, you, would, you would want it there next to Strunk and White's Elements of Style. I, I Wouldn't they fight? <laughs> you know, never mind uh, we were i was talking about uh you know you were talking about uh jazz and casey and i might be a little bit little less sophisticated we went to we were in ravello italy one time and we were at a con i know you know where i'm going sorry at casey you made me laugh Her Herbie Hancock, <laughs> and it was me and casey and gore vidal and whoever was with gore vidal i can't remember Wow. But anyway, we were all in a row because we were all, you know, I was a guest, me and Gore Vidal were the guest at something or another. And so anyway, we're there and we're watching and Herbie Hancock <clears> came out and they started <throat> playing around. And, it, and Casey said, this is just awful. And I said, well, they're just warming up. About an hour later, I said, you know, she said, I don't think they're warming up, Dad. And I said, you know, they're not. And when they, when they stopped, we got out of there. And later we, we met with uh, Vidal in a coffee shop. And I said, um, what, what did you think of that? He says, well, I think they uh, got deep into something and got lost and couldn't find their way back. <laughs> and I've never, Very never forgotten that. He was thing. It wasn't, it wasn't yeah. Hancock's normal uh, music. He was no, doing I've heard, I've heard some good neat. stuff by it, but it was like, and I just, you know, I'm not into that. And, you know, give, give, well, give me Elvis any day. And, and yeah. I got to tell you, you know, I had, I, David, you definitely opened up my appreciation for Sinatra after yeah. our visit and you had given me a, a book. Um, and I, it, I always appreciated him, but I grew up with dad sort of being the, the Dean Martin fanatic yeah. so that was more what i heard so i was always better. like yes he is thank you <laughs> so, I, I have his records man i'm not just saying that i like him more too i wrote a i wrote a long piece about sinatra that it's a an, an ebook called uh, sinatra the, the artist and his music 
That's the one and, I read. Um, and and I get and that was included. It, it's it's a it's an ebook, but in print, it was it's called Stars in My Eyes: My Love Affair with Books, Movies, and Music. <clears throat> and there's a long piece in there about Frank. And um, <clears throat> when Frank was he he, he you know he he was was taught by an opera singer from the Met that he, and, and he at one point had a singing manual that was, was written by Frank Sinatra. And I, God bless him. I've forgotten the name of the art, uh, uh, the, the, the tenor who had been with the Met and uh, Frank, when he was singing these songs, he had to believe that they came out of his background, that they, that he was, as it were, the creator. So he would take a pad and pencil and he would write down the lyrics and then throw the piece of paper away and write it down again and write it down again as if it was like a diary of his, as if what he was describing was his own experience so that when he would go in to deliver these songs, <clears throat> he, he, you know, a lot of, you know, I love Ella Fitzgerald, but I never believed that Ella ever, you know, paid attention to the lyrics of her songs. It was all the dynamics of the singing. But with Frank, it, with rare exceptions, uh, you believed that he was singing to you. And then Mabel Mercer who and, and Billie Holiday, who were the, the, the female artists who taught him how to how to do this. Yeah, so Holiday, uh, I, right. I thank you. Yeah, the, uh, Sinatra has a, you know, it's a dated kind of music, but he has a lot to teach people, especially about using the microphone. As he said, not that Dorsey had his trombone, singers have their microphone and you can use well, it. To, you don't have to belt out. You can bring it in. You don't have to strengthen. Or if you're going to breathe, have the courtesy to take the microphone away and then breathe and come back, which unfortunately most modern superstar singers sound like they need they need oxygen all the time. They just never learned to use the microphone and nobody told them you're doing it wrong. So Pete Hamill wrote a book. Ahead, you changed the way that I use the mic and there, oh, there's wonderful. been a lot of time, uh, really, because, you know, I, I've always been cognizant of it. But it, after reading that and and since that moment, I've had a lot of people that are they people that are in in the know, know, if you will, compliment the mic usage. And to me, that's the biggest compliment of all, yes. because I know that they're really watching what is happening. And there's such an art of, and you know, live versus studio, this is a whole different conversation, but there is such an art of using this tool and, and finding, you know, where to put it, where to aim it. There's, I mean, it's so subtle that I was able to dive a lot deeper into because of that piece. So that was a real big moment. Oh, I'm, I'm, that's Ooh. very exciting to me. And, and, you know, and you get rid of, by using the microphone properly, you get rid of the S sounds at the end of words and you get rid of the popping P's and B's. Yep. And, you know, it just it just becomes so much smoother. But, you know, and, and I mean, you know, I'm a fan and I have your I have your CDs and you know how much I admire your work. Um, and I've seen you live as well. Uh, and uh, and, you know, it and it shows that, that you would that, and, and if only more people would would take the time to, you know, to learn that art. Well, it's definitely. Did you ever read, uh, I'm sorry. Did you ever repeat Hamel's why, uh, why Sinatra matters? Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you know, I, I think I he matters, but I, I, I think he matters, but I don't like him. That's all. <laughs> that's all I can take. Frank? It's like you were talking about when somebody's singing to you and it's, you know, and it's going yeah. past you. That's the way I am with Sinatra. I said, why is he just talking? 
This isn't interesting to me at all. And then well, once in a while, I'll hear talking like talking is the hardest thing to do. I to be able <laughs> yeah, to I know it, but it's not the it's not the, it's hard for me to appreciate yeah. it. But I appreciate it in the bigger right. sense. I understand, but I appreciated it more after David because you start to realize like those little things that are are because I I don't think that his voice or his songs are as interesting as maybe some other artists, but I think his level of skill when you really break down those kinds of things is really hard to, to beat. And I've been able to appreciate it more and more. So the the interpretive ability, his his voice, especially toward the end got, you know, kind of crackly, but, but uh, I mean, there are lots of other Vic Damone had a better voice. All right, but Vic didn't whatever with due, 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 due respect. Vic didn't have whatever, <laughs> and and Frank, um, he could make you believe in the song, which is one of the hardest things mm-hmm. for a vocalist to do. Keith, yeah. jump in, man. Oh, I'm just waiting. Though uh, there was a reminder, um, and I, I'm trying to remember what his name is because it was fantastic. Um, as soon as I start to do this, you're going to watch, just watch Casey and dad. They're both going to have the reaction. Cause I'm going to remind them. What was that real tall redheaded guy's name that we were in Italy? And we went to see Tim. that show to get Tim. Tim. What's what's Tim's last great, great guy. Also okay. a writer. Yeah. Also. So either way, whatever this, what happened was we went to go listen to this, uh, musician and it was one that was, it was jazz kind of, musician yeah and and then after that was over there was a guy mm-hmm. who had like a washboard and a harmonica and he was great he was uh-huh. all over the place it was just fantastic it was just wonderful to watch but then this other band came on and it was it was just too loud it was not doing anything it was supposed to do everybody was you could just tell everybody was just having an awful time and as time went on we had a group of i don't know probably about 15 of us that we were running with at the time and we were seeing as time went on there would be one more would peel off and another one peel off and you know it was just (laughs) kind of getting to the point but so we got out there and it was everybody was outside except for tim willis and we were all just like man this must be his jam he is like he is still in there. It's been it's been a while, and we were just kind of waiting on him, waiting on him, waiting on him. Finally, he strolls out. Now I understand he's like seven foot tall, so he's just this big, giant, goofy dude, just kind of walking out. And he finally gets out there, and I go, "Tim, man, um, I, 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 did you enjoy that?" And he goes, and he took some. He started digging in his ear, <laughs> took some cigarette paper that he had rolled up and jammed in his ears. He was like, "What?" <laughs> it was it was so great. And I think that every time. So when I think about people trying to appreciate bad music, Tim will. I've never been able to forget that moment because he just came strolling out, just as like you know that man was going to be there for the whole show. By God, he paid for a ticket and he was leaving. <laughs> it was uh, James Blood. You know, you ever heard of the guy James Blood? I mean, he's not his last. His last name isn't Blood, but they call him Blood, and he's a guitar player. Um, anyway, that was him great when they were doing the He was great. Yeah, it is, he's blues and jazz. Yeah, he, he was both. great. He was great. But no, the other I don't remember who it was that came on after. No, no, that's who but, it was. It was it was Blood. That guy. Oh, I thought you. I thought I thought. What, what was the name of the guy? Because you you actually had a run in with this guy later, the guy that had the washboard and the harmonica. You somehow. <laughs> That was Pablo Leone, I think, the the <clears throat> Italian performer. 
Could have been. I don't know. Yeah. Dad ran into him in like Louisiana a week later, weirdly enough. So it <laughs> Kevin, was like, that's Kevin. It was Kevin. You you know, when we you and me ran into him at BoucherCon, he we walked by and he was playing in one of the little Oh, bars okay, there. okay, okay. All right. Uh, yeah. It's not Kevin, it's uh, oh, uh the guy Andy Kevin. Forrest, but Andy Forrest was great. Andy Forrest, yeah. That yeah, Andy, Andy Forrest was great. Right. That's the one that was great. Okay. Sorry guys, we've gone off on a Lansdale tangent and yeah, we're, we're, we're all interesting. Get, we're gonna <laughs> get there. But either way, I don't remember who it was. It was bad. But Dad says it was whatever blood or whatever. I don't but, remember who was bad. I just yeah, remember. I just remember Tim. Tim just killed me, and I'll never. I every every time I ever think of somebody having to listen to bad music, Tim will forever be my my thought. <laughs> that was yeah. great. Hey, I, I appreciate that. Um, I'm still stuck five minutes ago, Keith. Your hair's too long to ever say that a uh, a band was playing too loud. <laughs> is that what it is i, I don't i don't i don't, I don't get to have volume control <laughs> you know no. my, our cousin uh jimmy lansdale my second uh, i mean my uh double first cousin uh is is one of those guys that Can you make us sound a little bit whatever. more redneck <laughs> <laughs> He, he's one of those guys that believes in Bigfoot and hunts him and all that stuff. He doesn't uh, he just had believe in him. You, he's yeah, got he's, a lot more than just believing in him. Casey, yeah, I'm going to need that Lansdale photo coffee but, table book right now. <laughs> but what he was saying, he said he saw Keith's picture and he said, I can't even grow a beard. And I can't either. I It just doesn't happen. And I, Keith, how did that happen? You know? I couldn't grow a beard until a few years ago. That's the really weird thing. Like, you got a mustache, always, man. You got a beard. I've I've always been somebody who like I could go months without shaving, and I would always look like yeah, I had that five o'clock shadow, and I had the chocolate milk mustache. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's I, when I grew I, my first mustache. I, yeah, no, I, I there's there's pictures yeah. of me that I burn upon seeing every time, and it's the chocolate milk mustache because I tried to grow one once, and it was just horrible. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Just there was like a week went by where I was too busy to shave. And I was like, what the hell is this? And it just, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I'm going to try it for a while. I'll see what, it, see what I'm doing with it. So, Patrick, <laughs> yeah. when did you lose control of the interview? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. When I, point? when I first tweeted at your father, you know, like that, a year let me, let me come back to something that you... <laughs> Yeah, you started earlier with with uh, David's book. One time, David and I were talking about this. And his book was I mean, he's the guy, he's supposed to be like it. the main guest. <laughs> yeah, but I gave him a quote for this book. But we yes, were talking, and in the book, he talks about not writing in first person. Do you remember that? Yeah, it's my most controversial. Yeah, and I, and I, I don't say every not one to of my do books it, is, but you have to have a good reason well, for it. The problem with yeah. first person, I, one problem is that people tend to use only details of sight when they write in a first person. And it, so, if you, so if you can know that there's a lot of issues with first person and, and one, that's one of them. And if you're aware of the danger, then you can, you can moderate against yeah. it. The problem is that, you know, I, I don't say don't do it because a lot of my how, Household wrote in the first person. Now, uh, Henry James is, uh, um, oh, come on, Turn of the Screw is first person. There's a, a lot of great ones. But, yeah, anyhow, yes, you did give me a quote for the successful novelist. I was going to say that earlier. Yeah, but but I was telling you, the first person, I would say, you know, you got the great Gatsby, you got the son yeah. of and, and all of my novels are in first person except maybe four. 
I think. I think all of mine are. I think Dave's been trying to tell you something. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. How did you choose that shit? (laughs) (laughs) Well, David, also really cool for the audio book. You have the same guy, uh, Patrick Lawler, that did the Blue Rose trilogy for Peter Straub, who also Peter, um, no news to you, but Peter supplied a blurb for that book, which is that how was that kind of like a stellar moment for you too to just uh, an author that you appreciate that you can couldn't think higher of and uh, not not to not to kind of like throw shade your way Joe but uh, was that was that kind of like a, a really well, cool moment yeah, for you? I know. <laughs> so uh, so I'm not is that I I can't is that to Joe or to me that you're oh that was to you David for the successful novel you mean about the successful uh, 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 Dean Kuntz was very kind to me as well and and Lawrence Block uh, 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 was was also contributed and you know it's very you know it's for the sense of the collegiality that that um, that we have um, that isn't always the case in some groups of authors but that my experience in 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 certainly in horror and um um, related genres that you know people are always willing to, to to pitch in and help one another. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what? I will yeah. say just because you brought him up, um, Larry Block. He actually, I think, helped to sort of pivot a small trajectory of people asking me to do things without asking oh, really? uh, asking Dad and I to do something. We were in line. And and I had some of his books and dad had some books and dad's, you know, hopping like a little kid because he's about to get Larry to sign these books. <laughs> and so but he had too many. And so I know Larry. <laughs> I know. Yeah. But it, you're still excited. And and so we go up and dad is talking. Right. Larry for a minute, And then dad walks off and then I'm there and I'm like, he had too many books. So can you get these? Can you sign these as well? And he starts talking to me and he bought one of my stories for the, his latest collection. Ooh. Oh, are you, are you in the, in the, the, the game anthology? No, it's collectibles. Well, it came out during pandemic. Oh yes, yes, yes. Okay. And um, congrats. Well, thanks. And, I, yeah, well, and I already wish I could rewrite that story because well, now I'm already like, what have I done? Welcome the, to the, welcome to the club. I, everything I've ever right. done, I wished I could do again. So, you know. but it was, I'd like another crack at everything. I mean, that's, know? that's, that means you're doing good though. Cause we're growing. Because, yeah, growing. yeah, exactly. Cause if you're, if you look up years later and you'd write it the exact same, then you haven't changed as a writer at all. And I think that that's right. part of the journey of being one is being better every time you sit down. Well, I hope um, so. But you he should really always a, want to rewrite your work. He took a little oh. gamble and it was so yeah. nice. And, and, you know, the other side of it too is, and Keith, I don't, I'm sure you've experienced, and we've talked about this before is just the writing process is it's something that we've been doing off and on our whole lives, but I think only recently something that we've leaned hard into. And I think pandemic for me had a lot to do with that because I couldn't <clears throat> live performance. So I thought, okay, how do, what do I do? And I've really done a lot of artist development in the last few years. Whereas I think a lot of times people sort of have this expectation mm. because we grew up in a literary household that there's no artist development needed. And it's just like anybody, you know, you keep owning the craft, yeah. you keep hopefully getting better and you keep learning from what you're doing. So like you're saying, hopefully every time you sit down, you're doing a better novel and um, the only one of us that can say they shouldn't change anything they did is David. Oh no, <laughs> it works. <laughs> the system works. 
you know the nailed it. You know the the uh, <laughs> my my main instructors were were other books. I didn't have college, and I and I think too when you don't have that kind of education, if you want it, you go out and you just get as much of it as you can. So I have a more random education. And I think the bad thing about planning your own education is you leave out the stuff you might maybe ought to know, but you just don't want to do. And that's kind of the drawback. But all of my stuff, I learned by by doing it. I never met a, another writer or an agent or a producer in, yeah. uh, until I'd been writing for years. I didn't know what that was like, you know, and and I I just had to learn on instinct and, and reading other people and reading David. You know, when I read First Blood, that taught me a lot. And James Kane and Chandler and Bradbury and Matheson and Robert Block, many people that I got to know later, you know, which is even very impressive to me because when you grow up, these guys are your guys. And when you get to meet them, it's like, oh my God, these are my guys. And some of them have become good friends. And then once in a while I'll look and I'll go, wait a minute, that's David Morrell. He wrote that book that changed things for me. I thought he's like a big dog. He's like a grown up. Yo, how to feel the first time you met Dave, uh, David, sorry. Was it, how was it? Do, do you remember? Were you nervous? Not Coming to me. Yeah, uh, Joe, yeah. How How was it the first time you met David? Oh, it was a World Fantasy Convention, I think. Yeah. I think. And we actually came, just actually, gravitated to each other. One, one of the best conversations we had, this would be really early, I think, 81, 82, 83. You were doing an anthology mm. with Karen. <clears throat> And you that's asked right. me if I would do a story for you. And we were, you know, that's in some ways where we bonded, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, that we were kicking the story back and forth. And I remember talking to Karen, who I had a police officer in it, and Karen had, had been a dispatcher, as I recall, for the police department. So she was, you know, giving me some of the language that I hadn't gotten quite correct. And I think that's where we we started uh, uh, our, our conversations and then just continued. Yeah. And then, of course, yeah, and uh, on Casey forever. Yeah, it's yeah. it's real hard because you know you've always been somebody who um, sort of walked that line of of treating me. I I don't know how much time you've seen Keith, but you always had that thing of treating me as an adult and also treating me as someone to to um, to reveal things to. And it was it always felt really nice because it, it was always like, oh, is David going to be there? Because so we always be had good conversations. Yeah. I, I always appreciated yeah. that about you. I still appreciate that about you. And of course, Donna, oh, you know, she kind. gave me snacks. So, you know, there's Donna. Yeah, and then, and then well, there's... I'm really just in it for the snacks. Yeah. And I was thinking about it when David said Not that before around. married, they were traveling. <laughs> you remember you said, you said you were traveling with your wife uh, before she was your wife? And y'all were going somewhere. And I was thinking, did Peter pack him peanuts and M&M's? Did he get peanuts and M&M's? No, what, what, so. what we had, you're bringing back a moment, because I had a car that I paid $100 for. And I didn't, there wasn't any floor to the car. Uh, it had rusted out underneath. So I when, had one, though. I remember it was wintertime. Flintstone car, I believe. The, 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 the I told you, y'all thought I was joking we were, about those tablets. Yeah, no, I'm, I mean, finally the police pulled me over and took the car away. But uh, then that was that was what it was like to go to Toronto to, with my 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 dear wife yeah. put up with a lot of stuff. Yeah, mine did too. I had like a an old Ford that you know smoked like a bit. You had you had to stop, put two cans of oil in. I did that <laughs> when I yeah. you got and the gasoline the and then you put the oil out. in it. Yeah. yeah. I had a car with the floorboard out. We'd drive at night, and I'd get kind of tired. My foot would slip through that hole, you know, and I just enough where I'd go, damn, I could, if I'd hit the floor down there or go through it, I'd break, 
my leg pull it off, you know. And uh, it was an old station wagon that I had for a while, but it rusted out in the bottom. And, and if I paid a hundred dollars for it, I'd have paid fifty too much. <laughs> David, I have, a, I have a question for you. I don't know if we're wrapping it up. I I can never guess for the Lansdales and spe- specifically, but because um, we have done outros where it was like fifteen or twenty minutes long. But uh, I if we am, start now to close, we'll be done you know, in a half hour. All right, we let's are. pretend this is the outro. So, uh, David, I do really want to know though if if you could for anyone listening, any writers, um, what's something that you would uh, kind of impart on them? I, I know you talk all about it in the. Uh, in your book that we've mentioned quite a few times, the successful novelist, but is there any one or two things that you would want to touch on? I always, I have mantras and, and uh, I mean, it, it, in a way it, 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 it applies to what we've been talking about indirectly that <clears throat> you have to be your own person. So, but what the way I put it is you, you know, be a first rate version of yourself rather than, than a second-rate version of another person or another artist. And that doesn't guarantee that you're going to be a success, but it guarantees – I remember uh, William Tenn told me the hardest thing is to get an identity that's true to you and to stick with it so that you're not somebody, you know, that – you know, John's – nobody needs another John Steinbeck. Nobody needs another William Faulkner to use the examples that he did. That, that you have to be, to try to be that author who is unique. So I, I put it down to be a first, and it just makes sense anyhow in anything you do, be a first rate version of yourself and not a second rate version of another author. And then the second, the corollary of that is don't chase the market. You will always see its backside. And, yeah. and, and uh, you know, everybody here, um, you know, that's what they do. They're, what we what we do is we're ourselves and we found a way to express ourselves uh, and to 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 make it so other people uh, hopefully enjoy it. And, and but we all know uh, people who have actually imitated others and have tried to build a career on that level. And they did OK sometimes. But you always know it's not it's not the real thing. You know, and and um, so those are those are my two main things. Whenever I whenever I teach writing, that's what I push. Um, Joe, I'd, I'd actually like I, I will say I will say this that that uh, that's kind of a version of mine is write like everybody you know is dead. Well, that's all right. You're not writing for. Yeah, you're just you know you're writing for yourself, and then when you get through, you hope other people like it. But if you're sitting there thinking about what your <laughs> audience is going to like or whatever, then you're going to end up you know, trying to write to them and end up writing like other people are writing um, in a way that's not authentic. I always think that's important, but I, I, I've told my kids, both of them, I said, you know, pretty much what you said, find your own identity, find your own way. And I, I, I always try to like, if it's like a hockey game and, and like the puck comes and I kick it back and play with them, but I never really tell them how to do it because I don't think that's what I want to do. You can and tell them how not you know, to do it. I mean, there's a lot of mistakes. That well, you sometimes, play. yeah, yeah, you can do that. Sure. But, but, you know, it's probably, you know, not good to write a book that has no character. Or he'll take or, it and be like, whatever. something's wrong with it. Work it out. <laughs> Something's wrong with it. That's what I do. Something's wrong, There's something wrong with this piece of shit. But that I, is I valuable feedback. <laughs> yeah, that's just so helpful. 
yeah. David, actually, do you want See, to touch that's on- why I didn't become a teacher. Actually, I did teach writing for eight years. And what I learned is you can't teach writing. You, you can <laughs> encourage people that want to write and you can kind of help somebody get to be a better writer. But I, I found that even some people who started out having, I guess, all of the abilities to put words together. And then you'd have somebody that wasn't that good, but they were more authentic. And yeah. you would, and it is a mystery of words because sometimes you see this and you go, why doesn't that work? There's not anything really wrong, mm-hmm. with, but mm-hmm. it just does not have any juice. You know, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, I actually want to ask you about one more book, uh, David. Burnt Offerings is one of my favorite. The book, the, I, I like the book more than the movie, but uh, both. No, no I, I don't have anything to do with Burnt Offerings. I, I was wondering. You didn't do if, that one. No, I, no. Know, I know that. I was wondering if you liked it. Oh, the book or the yeah. movie? No. Oh, either oh, one. Uh, it's been years since I remember the novel, and it's not it's not <laughs> specific enough. I, I thought the novel was pretty good. I don't remember anything about the the movie. I did a book called Burn Sienna. That's what I thought you would. Yeah. I didn't know if I could talk now. Uh, Brandon. You've talked about, you know, I I hate the book and the movie. Uh, Really? I don't like the book or the movie. And my friend Uh William F. Nolan wrote, wrote the script and I love, love Bill and he did a good script, but I just didn't think there was anything you could do to help that book. (laughs) But if you you know, spoke to you, well, you know, there's some people have those feelings, you know, there, I know, whatever, Joe. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> uh, Brennan, do you have anything before we do? I do want to throw out uh, one more question about uh, the successful novelist. I, I read that book um, over the summer and I it was fantastic. You know, we talked about the whole first person thing um, and, you know, to each their own opinion. But uh, I just finished writing the first draft of the third book in a trilogy. And the whole thing is in first person. And mm-hmm. It's because book one was in first person when I, I I didn't know any better. I I wrote the book and people were like, oh, you should really write in third person. I was like, well, it's too late now. Um, but reading your book kind of inspired me to say, OK, let's let's put some extra thought into uh, why it is that this story is being told, why yes. it's being dictated. Exactly. And um, I ended up, you know, coming up with what I think is a, a really neat idea for that kind of gets very clear in book three, but really resonates throughout the first two. And I do think that the trilogy as a whole is stronger for that idea, you know, resonating backwards in book three. You started, we were, with, you started by saying in the first two books, it was in first person, but in the third book, I've decided to do different right at the beginning. Right. And then like David <laughs> do it for his well, sequel. We were talking about Frank Sinatra earlier, and Frank had a sign outside his Palm Springs house at the gate, and it said, you better have a damn good reason for ringing this bell. And I think that because first person, it's so beautiful, but it's so often not used correctly. So I always figure if you're going to use first person, you better have a damn good reason for it. And, And if you think about it, then it, it 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 makes the technique deeper and more authentic. So what you said is very, I think, very encouraging. I just downloaded. Yeah, the yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, and you, you know, one reason one reason I work in first person most of the time is that I think I do it reasonably well. For one, but you secondly, do? I think is that I'm I, I care about style a lot, but I'm I'm very much a storyteller, and I think there's kind of a, a storyteller, and then there's uh, you know a 
a writer and you can be a great writer, but not to be a natural storyteller. And you can be something of a storyteller and not a great writer. But mm -hmm. I always felt like that when I tell, I tell you what started with me was John Carter of Mars. And when I read that book, I believed it, you know, back when I read as a kid, mm -hmm. I was 10, 11 years old. And I read this. I'm like, my God, this happened to him. And when I read Raymond Chandler, I just said, Marlowe's real. You know, and uh, when I read James Kane and he was talking about these things that they, these all awful, stupid things I love that these characters were doing, I believed it, but yet I was interested in them. And so for me, I, I do believe this statement is that first person is the easiest to do, but the hardest to do well. Very and good. I think that I have a natural leaning toward it. And a lot of times when I start a novel in third person, I lose interest real quick. And that's not always, but First person for me is is the way that I can bring my background, my experiences and things into it, not necessarily always literal, but I think that I write very much from my own experiences when I was growing up and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I had some unique things in my background <clears throat> and I believe that those things help me tell the story better. So I never, I always think, how can I not write it in first person is the first thing because I'm always you know, better at that. I think I started a new novel, got about 60 pages in it. And I said, what's wrong with this? And then I realized it was in third person. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean I don't write novels or short stories in third person because I do, but it's that direct connection that makes a novel strong for me. But I, well, I don't think the there's idea a rule. I don't believe a rule. The idea of doing it and, but knowing basically what, you know, what's my motivation more or less. Mm -hmm. And then you do it stronger is I, I like the idea. I think that should be the title of this episode is the, you can ring my bell, but you, you better have a good reason. You better, for better have a damn good reason for ringing this bell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, that, that, the thing in the acting is sometimes overdone that what's my motivation, but that's really a kind of thing that, that I always do is what, what is the reason that the character would do this yeah. and how would this character react and why would they react that way? Absolutely. And if they're going to react totally different, what yeah. is it about them that causes that? And I don't always know in my mind exactly what it is about them, but somewhere in my deep subconscious, I recognize that there's something about this person that causes them to act that way. And then it becomes consistent throughout. Yeah, there's there's nothing that'll pull you out faster than when all of a sudden a character who you've established is a certain way, and then all of a sudden they just do something because it's convenient. And actually, funny enough, Dad and I had a conversation this morning about a TV show that we both were really big fans of until it just didn't make sense that the characters were doing something that were like they've yeah, established they were doing things it, but they did it just because it made it something that they could be like, look at that, we didn't thing see in the that world. coming. So. The worst thing in the world is a writer's room. You know, you get in the writer's room and everybody wants a piece of it. You know, they all want to be sure they've, you know, they all, they're like all the dogs that want to have pissed on that lawn. And they <laughs> want to show that, I, that they have some attachment to it. And it's not about whether it's good. It's about them. Because what they're doing is they're looking for their next job. And they, uh -huh. they think if I can say I'm the one that put the dog in there that peed on the car, that, that was my part. And even if it makes no sense for the novel or for the story, rather, and you see that in film a lot, why most film sucks is that with the best stuff, when they try to adapt something as it was, as it existed, do better than when they try to just bring something in and have all these different opinions in a writer's room. I, I don't don't love writer's rooms. It's kind of like uh, what happened with Peter Benchley's Jaws, the, you know, the book 
great first chapter. I like that book. I, I know. I like that book, but I think the except for the better. sex scene in the diner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? I don't like any of the thing with Hooper in the book, but I like that book. I thought that his descriptions of the uh, shark were just so powerful. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I like the whole impetus of the book. But the what what happened is when when they did the movie, they said, "Does this part matter?" And they threw it out. And Hooper was actually supposed to die in the screenplay too. The Hooper only reason they saved him the is they, they had that cage and they couldn't get it to work with him in it. They actually had a, a little person in there so they could shoot <laughs> and the shark would look bigger. And they, and the shark nearly got the guy. And so that he got out and they had this empty cage. So what they do is they have Hooper crawling across the bottom. One of the coolest things in the film is that he mm-hmm. survives. And, the, and it was an <laughs> accident, you know? Mm-hmm. I did not know that there's a little person in there. That's, an interesting yeah, fact. I saw a thing on Jaws just the other day. All right, guys, <laughs> I got to go to bed. I'm old. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know David needs to go. If I've got to go, go I'm older than you guys, so I'm definitely. That's a good outro. All right. So uh, <laughs> I've got my cot right here, so it's all set. Anyway, great to see everybody. Uh, I haven't seen Keith, and I have no idea when. It's I had a really while. good dinner with with uh, Casey and and uh, Joe at BoucherCon, I think it was in 2019, which I still remember fondly. And it's nice to meet the rest of you guys virtually. And I thank you really deeply for the very kind words for what I do, because as we all know how tough this is. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we do our best and it's, it, and it's nice to be recognized. So I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, you're I, I, I actually like being on here with with David, who's my friend, but he's also kind of one of my my writing heroes. So that's cool. Oh well, thank that's you. really cool. Um, hey, real quick, David, are you going to go to BoucherCon in San Diego next year? I I just don't know. I got a little phobia Ooh. about with COVID about yeah. airports. Yeah. And I, I remember how much I disliked them, but I've been traveling a lot and I feel luxurious that I haven't been traveling. Um, it's possible. Uh, I like BoucherCon a lot and they were very kind to me with an award. Um, so so it might be that I'll get, you know, back into it. But at the moment, I'm not doing much traveling. Okay, that's fair. And, you know, it's hard. It's like we all got in a different rhythm. But, but for you, it'll be easier because you could drive now. Well, that's my intention. So that's I hope to I hope to see you there. Okay, so. thank you. Well, thank let you. me let me tell David one encouraging thing about traveling. George Martin had a, a script that I wrote that they made a film out of and they showed Vincent Ofrio directed and starred in it. So they said, we want you to come out. And we're going to see this. My son went and his girlfriend went and we all went out there and I came back with COVID. And oh, well, <laughs> so uh, I, there you I are. was sick two days. Yeah, uh-huh. I was sick two days. So I was fine, you know, and it was kind of like a light cold because I had I had all the, you know, the, the shots, all of the boosters. You know, I wore a mask on the plane, mm-hmm. everything, and I still got it. But it was mild. Thank you. You could have got sicker. Yeah. Does, does anyone uh, want to? I licked every doorknob. I touched every person. Somehow I didn't get it. <laughs> Just real quick, final thoughts. Yeah. Anybody want to say anything before we go? Thanks, Just guys. Like Thank you for having us. It was wonderful to see everyone. Yeah. This was great. Good to yeah. see everyone. Good to see well. you, David, sincerely. Yeah, same here. Believe me. This is one of my favorite episodes, honestly. And uh, guys, uh, listeners, next episode, 169, that'll be our third annual Halloween special with Trevor Henderson. He's a... Uh, awesome artist he's an author he's 
we're looking forward to seeing him. Thank you, David, Casey, uh, Joe, and Keith, and Brennan. I uh, appreciate all you guys. And um, as always, you have many podcasts to choose from. Thank you for picking us. Uh,